They're perhaps the 519's most famous, or maybe infamous, family. Whether it's from books, movies, television, or elsewhere, just about everyone in the area and outside of the area knows something about the Black Donnellys. In this two-part series, the 519 podcast examines their story. How everything happened, whether this was some vigilante justice for people who were running afoul of the law, or is this violent anarchy? Was this a family murdered by a drunken, pitchfork-wielding mob? To find out, here's your host, Haley Chang. When the Donnelly family arrived in Canada from Ireland, they arrived in the country during one of the more lawless eras in our history. The legal system was set up in a way to protect primarily personal property. Assaults and other serious crimes usually meant fines for the perpetrator, if that. Stealing chickens or cows from a farm, however, could have meant a long stay behind bars. All of this is to say, with the Donnellys being known for being Lucan's most prominent outcasts, they were really just another tough, fighting family from that era. To this day, the Donnellys' reputation is one that for most people is a negative one. Many know them as the Black Donnellys because of the way they've been portrayed in pop culture. But how much do we really know about the Donnellys, and how much is just local lore? This is Thomas Levesque, museum supervisor and treasurer of the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum. So the Donnelly family were, uh, they were a family of Irish migrants who came in 1841. Back in Ireland at the time, it was the uh, landlord system, so a lot of Irish, especially Catholics, didn't have really the opportunity to own their own land and make their own stake. They were mostly farming land that was not theirs and owned usually by Protestant English landlords. So that was the mindset of James and Joanna Donnelly when they came to Canada. They married in Ireland, had their first son, and James came over to make it start their stake here. And a year later, Joanna and uh, James Jr. came. With the importance they put on owning their own land, it's no wonder that it was a land dispute that started the Black Donnelly family legend. James Donnelly had settled on a plot of land on the Roman line, which is where their current land is. That wasn't the land he actually had got from the land, uh, the Canada Company, He but he preferred this plot of land. So he made a handshake deal with... John Grace, who owned the land, he was a land speculator and had purchased it with the intention of uh, having it worked and then selling it at a profit. But he made a handshake deal, supposedly made a handshake deal with him that if he worked the land over 10 years and cleared it all, that then he'd be able to buy it at a reasonable price. Um, so after 10 years, after James Donnelly had cleared pretty much the full acreage, John Grace sold the lower half to William Mayer. And this was obviously upsetting to James Donnelly because he thought he had like a deal in place that he would be able to take the entire land, but he didn't really have any right to it because he had only had a supposed handshake deal. There's no proof, nothing in writing. He eventually tried to uh, do a swap to protect the northern half because uh, John Grace was planning on selling it to William Mayer later on. And his plan was to trade a, another portion of land that he had claimed and, but didn't actually own. And the seller that he had in mind was Patrick Farrell. And the idea was, here, I'll trade this piece of land, which has a seller, so you'll get your money. And I'll keep my northern portion of the land that I worked and lived on for the last 10 years and built my family on. But as soon as Patrick Farrell found out that he didn't actually own the land and so he couldn't actually buy it from him, he backed out which caused a lot of heat between the two of them. And Grace obviously had no interest in the trade after that. So James thought that his fortunes were done and he was betrayed by Farrell and betrayed by Grace. With the feelings of betrayal, the dispute came to an eventual confrontation in the process of clearing John Grace's land. It was hard to clear the land by yourself, so men would kind of 
get together on weekends on different portions of land and help people kind of clear sections while they had a whole bunch of manpower at once. Usually whoever was running it would supply lunch and a whole lot of alcohol. And for having uh, some men who don't like each other, the alcohol wasn't a great uh, great addition. Farrell was drunk and kept antagonizing Donnelly, who had also had some to drink. Eventually, they got into a scuffle. Witnesses say Farrell took a swing at him with a stick, and so Donnelly took a, in his anger, took a hand spike and screamed, I'll murder you, and hit him on the head, and would be a fatal blow. He eventually died uh, a day later at his home, and Donnelly went back to his home, uh, expressing nothing but regret and fear. He claimed he had no intention of actually killing him, and it was all in rage, but, you know, that's uh, one man's word. So that kind of set things off where, though the Donnellys did get along with a lot of people in the community, there was this uh, stigma associated with the family. James was arrested and convicted for the murder. He was sentenced to execution, but that was later commuted to a lesser sentence after Joanna ran a petition around the community. For the seven years that James was in the Kingston Penitentiary, Joanna raised their seven children alone. The kids grew up with a lot of teasing and taunting about their father and what he had done, and uh, that kind of formed a bit of their you know, rough and tumble fighting attitude because they wouldn't really stand for being insulted and uh, they were often teased. Uh, Bill Donnelly as well, who had a club foot, uh, was teased over that. And so a lot, a lot of fighting growing up for the Donnelly boys. With there being all of the boys in the family, it uh, you kind of have built-in backup. And that's a, what a lot of the storytelling afterwards treated them as, is like they were a gang because they had all those brothers who were all together and uh, set up for each other. And growing up with the... You know, those challenges of working the land with just uh, their mom and their uncle who was kind of in and out helping and having to stand up for the family who had a very negative perception in the community obviously made them kind of born in conflict and kind of used to conflict and not really averse to it because of that. Um, If you're in it constantly, you eventually kind of get used to it, I imagine. And they grew up just in constant conflict because of that. The Donnelly brothers continued their quick-to-fight ways from their childhood in their early adulthood when they eventually started their own stagecoach business. And to go alongside their keen entrepreneurial spirits, they were well-versed in managing competition. Aside from the railway threatening to send the stagecoach market into extinction, it was still a very profitable business. Competition was strong, and the Donnelly brothers found themselves constantly fighting toe-to-toe with their arch-rivals, the Flanagans. Both stagecoach companies took competition to another level, burning each other's stables, beating each other's horses, and running each other off the roads. The biggest one that, and it was kind of the most consequential, was when the uh, Flanagan stage drove Tom Donnelly's stage off the road, and a man ended up getting mangled in the wheels and the uh, the reins of the horses and killed. That um, that really brought a lot a lot of dark attention towards the Donnellys. And as much as you know, it was mostly the Flanagans' fault, but Tom Donnelly didn't back down from the challenge on the road. It's uh, it's something that kind of affected the public perception because it was such a brutal death and it was an innocent who had nothing to do. It wasn't somebody in conflict with them or anything like that, but it was an innocent man killed. The Donnellys were hell on wheels, cementing the poor reputation they already had in their community. It got to the point where every time something bad happened around Lucan, the Donnellys got the blame, regardless of whether anyone can prove they were actually involved. Lucan, even like up to recently, fires happen a lot, especially in old buildings. Like those old barns or tinder boxes. So it became uh, a thing where very common where when there was a fire, you know, it was the Donnellys. It wasn't helped by reports that uh, 
uh, Robert and Tom Donnelly drunkenly tried to burn down the uh, opponent's uh, opposing company's uh, stables, which are actually just across the street and still standing here in Lucan, but wasn't able to get the straw lit. And then it was eventually eventually caught fire later on on another night. Um, so things like that don't help their case. So it became very easy for the community to believe when things happened that it was the Donnellys getting up to trouble or the Donnelly trying to intimidate somebody or the Donnellys trying to get back at someone when a lot of it was likely just, you know, happenstance and unrelated to the many other things the Donnellys actually did. But it becomes easy to scapegoat people when uh, you create a reputation like that. It got to the point where like people in Exeter, which right now is a 20 minute driveway, but was, you know, a longer stagecoach ride. If there was a fire in Exeter, people would say, oh, it's those damn Donnellys. They must have done it things like that. So their reputation ballooned. And even though there were a lot of people who were friends with the Donnellys, there were a lot of people and tended to be people with a little more power who liked them less. And that's kind of where things started to shift is the people who didn't like them tended to be people with positions of power. And as much as they did a lot of very rough and awful things, their reputation was probably a little bit bigger than they actually deserved. What enraged the community was that even when the Donnellys were caught red-handed doing these rough and awful things, they always found a way to avoid any sort of consequence. If the Donnellys got into conflicts with somebody, they that somebody would bring a charge against the Donnellys down to Burr, and the Donnellys would bring a competing charge to another justice of the peace, and so they'd end up with basically cancelling out like $1 fines or $1 damages, things like that. So it was kind of kind of a joke, and knowing the uh, the constables were often political appointments, were hired by people who were kind of friends, and so weren't necessarily always terribly competent at their jobs. And so when people had grievances, they weren't always actually dealt with in a way that was satisfactory. Bringing charges against the Donnellys was very difficult, and especially if you needed people to testify against them, because testifying against the Donnellys was risky. Um, testifying against anybody could be risky at that time, and. Certain groups like the Donnellys made it more so. And they were actually really helped too by Will Donnelly, who was very, very intelligent. And he wasn't a lawyer, but studied a lot of the law and hadn't become like he was never like an official uh, esquire or anything, but was as good or better than a lot of the lawyers that he went up against. And so was able to talk his family out of a lot of trouble with the law. And so there were like constant charges brought against the Donnellys, but a lot of them were just, you know, throwing eggs at a brick wall. It's it just nothing kind of broke through. Of course, the people in town were frustrated that the Donnellys could routinely avoid responsibility for the crimes they had committed. The law was supposed to keep the peace in Lucan, but it simply wasn't effective. And so in Donnelly fashion, they continued to find ways to add fuel to the fire. Lucan was a very, very violent town at the time. The Donnellys had a lot of friends amongst the community. They were friends with people on the Catholic and the Protestant side. Later on, that lends itself a little bit to why some of the Catholics do turn against the Donnellys is their kind of openness towards the Protestants. And it's not that they were like, you know, great open-minded people. They were just not, like, not to say that they weren't, but it's not necessarily a sign that they were very progressive or woke for the time. But they made friends with who they made friends with. They did business with who they did business with. And that was their primary goal. It came to the point where the community had enough both with the crimes the Donnellys actually committed and the ones they were blamed for but may not have even done. They decided to take justice into their own hands, all beginning when a new priest came to town. The new priest coming in, Father John Connolly, didn't help matters because he came in thinking, they brought him in specifically to try to cool the town down because it was such a, you know, such a tinderbox and such a hotbed for violence. And so he 
kind of came in with a certain perspective of himself and the goal of basically kind of stopping the Donnellys. And when he came in, you know, the Donnellys reputation preceded them. And when he wasn't kind of met with uh, the kind of fanfare and respect by the family, that kind of set him on a certain perspective of the Donnellys. Father Connolly took an immediate dislike to the Donnellys. And the fact became clear in his preaching, where his sermons always found a way to come back to the Donnelly family. The blatant bias seemed to reaffirm the rest of the community's hatred towards the Donnellys, which they wound up using to justify the planning of their revenge. They decided to form a peace committee, in which a group of men banded together to ensure laws were being followed in Lucan. They began by starting a pledge to have the Donnellys' homes searched for any missing or stolen property. This came after a neighboring farmer's cows were uh, stolen and the tracks seemed to lead to the Donnellys. The Donnellys were kind of split on this. They thought, on one hand, we didn't steal it. We don't really care. We'll sign it. On the other hand, they were also thinking, well, all it takes is somebody just rustling the cattle over to our property before the search, and then we're going to be seen as guilty. Um, So they didn't sign it, and that kind of set them apart from the community even more. And there was also issues with the politics at the time. The uh, Conservative Party started to run Catholic representatives in the area, and for the longest time, the Donnellys and everyone else here uh, just voted Liberal. So when they started to run Catholics, a lot of people said like, oh, well, let's, we're all going to vote for the Catholic guy. But the Donnellys and others stood up, stood by it saying, you know, the liberals represented us this whole time, whether they were Catholic or not. And remember, that wasn't super important to them. They represented our interests all this time. Why would we switch just for a token Catholic? And that created a lot of tension within the community and lost them some of their, some of their allies. Over time, the Peace Committee evolved into what they called the Vigilance Committee as several men thought the Peace Committee wasn't doing enough. The Vigilance Committee was essentially an oversized police force with no real ethical codes binding them to the law. It was a recipe for disaster, run by a man named James Carroll. James Carroll, who would eventually become a a constable in the community. He had kind of shown up as a 'er ne'er-do-well who had expected inheritance from his uncle, but things didn't really work out for him. And early on, he had some conflicts with the Donnellys. And... Those conflicts grew, and then it came to conflicts and harassment either way. And once he became a constable, the harassment became a little bit more, a little bit more bold. And so, him and a group of other men split off from the original peace society to develop the vigilance committee, which were, you know, low key staked with uh, trying to run the Donnellys out of town or get them into prison, and finally just take care of the problem. And while the pledge was being brought around and tension was in the air, there was a threat to burn down Grouchy Rider's barn. And so when it did happen, instantly the blame was put on the Donnellys. It's not likely that it was the Donnellys that did it. Uh, Most of the boys were at a wedding that night. Rob Donnelly had just returned from prison and was at home with his parents. But because there was no trustworthy perspective on where the parents were, that's what people claimed happened is the parents went out and did it. And so they were uh, charged with the crime. The parents in their 60s going out in, you know, late January winter weather to uh, burn down a barn was uh, not super likely. But it's something that it was a charge that kind of stuck to them for a bit. And that kind of is the spark. That group saw the burning of Grouchy Rider's barn as kind of one of the last straw. Grouchy Rider was part of the group. Um, And it's the, uh, the arrest warrant for James and Joanna was set so that they would be in court on the morning of February 4th. And that's February 3rd is when they went to their house. Um, 
the claim was that they were serving the warrant and they were going to make sure they actually went to, went to court the next morning. They weren't going to flee in the night. Um, but they were woken up sleeping uh, in the house. They were clearly not making any attempt to flee. After serving the warrant to James and Joanna Donnelly, the committee decided it was best to show up in full attendance. Not only that, but they all came armed with weapons. Spades, pitchforks, some men even brought guns. It was a lot considering the official committee business was to bring a warrant to two elderly grandparents. The overarmed nature of the conflict was a result of a night's worth of drinking to settle their nerves. It also impaired any ounce of good decision-making they would have had on that tragic and violent night. What that leaves us with is a group of drunk, armed, and angry men with torches lit and ready to serve justice. In part two of The Donnellys, Vigilante Justice or Violent Anarchy, we find out what happened that fateful night and how the Black Donnelly story lives on. This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Haley Cheng. It was written by Craig Needles, Patrick Magermans, and Haley Cheng, and produced by Craig Needles. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media. 